All right, if you're staying here, and if you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to James chapter 5. James comes right after Hebrews. We are returning to our series on walking by the Spirit, and in recent messages we've been talking about the spiritual gifts, some of the specific ones listed in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Um, Today is the second message on what the Apostle Paul called gifts of healing or gifts of healings. Uh, The first message was to increase our expectation that God still heals miraculously. And we looked at the healing ministry of Jesus in in Matthew chapter 8 for that. Today's message is about the practical matters of actually seeking God for healing, for miraculous healing. Um, Assuming that that is available to us, and we believe it is, what does it look like to actually seek God for it? That's a question that James answers for us. So we're going to look at James 5, 13 to 18, and uh, we'll read that and then ask the Lord to open up its meaning to us. James 5, starting at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain and the earth Board's fruit. Let's pray. Lord, open up to us the not just the meaning of this text, but also your heart behind it. Your heart that invites us to come to you with all of our suffering. You invite us to pray. You invite us to seek you. And you wouldn't do that unless you had something for us, unless that activity was in our best interests. And so, Lord, now, would you just give us eyes to see what you have for us, your character and your ways, which are good. And we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like many of you, I've witnessed ministry settings where divine healing has been sought after. And the variety of approaches used and the teachings associated with those approaches has been interesting, (laughs) to say the least. Um, I remember one TV preacher who put his hand up to the camera, and he said, now you place your hand over my hand on your TV set, and I will pray for you, and you will be healed, provided you give a donation to our ministry. Last year, I was at a Christian concert at Red Rocks, and before the main act, a man came on stage. He instructed everyone to lay hands on the person next to you, to your right and to your left, 
and then repeat after him certain things to the effect that whoever was sick would be healed if we all did that. We could add many other examples about different approaches or ideas about how we get healed. So what are we to think about those things? Uh, Are those biblical ways to seek divine healing? How can we decide? Well, the answer is always to look at what the Bible actually says and then follow that as best as we know how. Because the Scriptures, being God's Word, are the final authority in all things, including what does it look like to seek the Lord to be miraculously healed. The the Word speaks to that. It gives us instructions on what to do. So let's see what God has to say about it from James. We're going to start with an observation about the character of God that jumps out to us uh, from the text. The, The observation is this, which is that the Lord invites us to seek Him to be healed. The Lord invites us to seek Him to be made well. Here's how we know. Two times in the passage, we're told to seek the Lord for healing. Uh, The first is in verses 14 and 15. He says, Is anyone among you sick? What to do? Here's what to do. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So what do you do when you're sick? Well, in this case, you get the elders involved. You get them to pray for you in the hopes that you might be raised up, healed from your sickness. Notice that it doesn't say, is anyone among you sick? Well, just endure it. It's a fallen world. (laughs) It's subject to futility. So just get used to it. Just get used to pain and sickness and suffering. That's not what James says here. He says, are you sick? Get the elders involved. Seek the Lord and he might raise you up. The second place we see this invitation to seek healing is in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's an invitation to get fellow believers involved. Let confession of sin and prayer for one another be this common practice among you so that you may be healed. That's a positive affirmation that seeking the Lord for healing is part of obedient, God-honoring church life. And why should it be that way? It's because of how God has described himself to us. He's a father who has compassion on his children. He loves us, and it honors him that we should believe that and go to him when we're ill, when we're suffering from some physical affliction. It honors the character of our father that we should know there's somebody I can go to who may, in fact, remove this affliction from me. Now, as I mentioned last time, the Lord will not always heal us because like a wise father, he has reasons why he doesn't always give us what we want. 
That's why Dan preached on suffering last week from Psalm 73. Sometimes God's will is to give grace to endure suffering, not the grace to remove it. But suffering isn't God's will all the time. Otherwise, we wouldn't have these instructions in the Bible to say, ask Him to do something about it. Ask Him to relieve it. It can't be His will all the time if He's saying, pray that it will come, the healing. And I think it may be His will more often than we suppose. That James is trying to stir up faith here that a normal part of your lives as Christians should be to ask God, for healing. Now, how do we do that? How do we seek the Lord for healing? He gives us two scenarios in this passage. One involves calling for the elders to pray, and the other involves praying for one another. So let's look at those in turn. The first one's going to take the longest. There's a lot in there. The first one is calling for the elders to pray. The situation that James has in mind here is that of a person who's incapacitated. Such serious condition that they can't readily leave their home, most likely bedridden, perhaps in a hospital would be another application. That seems to be the case from the language of verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. So apparently they can't get to the church assembly where the elders are. The elders have to come to them. Then James says, Let the elders pray over him. An indication that he's probably lying down or maybe in a chair. And then there's the hope of verse 15, that the Lord will raise him up. Another indication that he's probably lying down. He's he's confined to a chair or something, can't get up. So this first scenario is someone who's in such a bad way that they can't leave their home. And in that case, James says, let him call for the elders of the church. Now let's camp on this scenario for a while. First, there's something here not to miss. This is another affirmation of the importance of the local church in a believer's life. This letter was written to believers in Jesus Christ, and James assumes that they are in a local body of believers that has elders. Let him call for the elders of the church. You can't do that. If you are just out on your own, not plugged into a church, you can only do that if you know who your elders are to call because they know you and you're a part of a body where they're leaders. Now, why call for the elders? Well, because Scripture says we are sheep and sheep, especially wounded sheep, need shepherds. They need pastors elders. It's the elders' privilege and responsibility to care for wounded sheep. It's how we can demonstrate the love of the chief shepherd, Jesus, who laid down his life for the sheep. It's how we practice his ministry of care, which at times included divine healing. You see, there's more to this than simply seeking to be made well. Because anyone can do that by going to the doctor. 
You don't need the elders to seek to be made well. You should go to a doctor. There's nothing in this passage that would say, don't use the common grace of God's med- of medicine. Uh, use that, employ that, seek the, the, the prescriptions, the operations, etc. That's a part of just uh, enjoying God's common grace of what he's given man to do to heal things. But James wants homebound or hospitalized believers to do something more than that. He wants you to call for the elders. Why? Because this isn't just about getting well. It's about receiving the care of the chief shepherd, Jesus, through his under-shepherds, the elders. Your sickness is an opportunity to receive from the church what you will likely not receive from the doctor, which is care for your soul. Because your sickness is always accompanied by your heart reacting to it. Sadness, fear, worry, anger, bitterness, all sorts of things are going on when we're ill. And so you need more than just care for the physical ailment. You need care for the soul. So call the shepherds in because that's what they're there for. Now what happens when they come over? James says in verse 14 that they pray over the sick person anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So what's the oil for? Well, one line of thinking by those who don't believe in modern-day miraculous healing goes like this. Oil was seen as having medicinal properties in the first century. So the thinking goes that James is talking here about elders applying the medicine of the day along with prayer for the sick person. So today's equivalent might be the combination of seeing the doctor for medical care and seeing the elder for spiritual care, and the combination of the two might lead to your healing. But medicine is not what James is talking about in anointing a person with oil. I think the most obvious reason is because of verse 15, which says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. It's the prayer of faith that is assigned the healing power, not the oil. So the oil is involved in this. The oil has a purpose here, but it's not to heal. The prayer is what heals. So what's the oil for? Well, the same reason oil is often used in the Old and New Testaments. When you anoint someone with oil, you're dedicating them to the Lord. So in this case, you smear or daub them with oil, which is what the word anoint means here, as a way of saying, we're committing you right now into the Lord's hands. We're dedicating you to Him. Only God can perform this healing. So we're looking to Him right now to do this. When I anoint with oil, I like to trace the cross on a person's forehead because all healing ultimately comes from Jesus, who according to Matthew 8, 17, took our illnesses and bore our diseases. 
by taking our sins. So the elders come. They anoint with oil. They pray over the sick person. And then James says, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, what does James mean by the prayer of faith? Because whatever that is, he is very confident that it's going to bring healing. In fact, he says it will. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Not maybe, not might save, not sometimes saves, but it will save him. The Lord will raise him up, guaranteed. This is very confident language. Now that's very complex, perplexing to serious students of the Bible because we know that lots of elders have visited the sick prayed praise over them, prayed with faith in God's ability to heal, and the sick person hasn't been raised up, not even most of the time. That's been my record. I've prayed for people who got worse and not better after I prayed for them, which is a great faith-building plug for you to call the elders to your bedside. <laughs> And yet James says this prayer is 100% guaranteed to save, to heal, to raise up. So what is it? Well, it's helpful to know that in the Greek original, it's literally the prayer of the faith. It's not the prayer of or offered in faith. It's not a prayer of faith. It's the prayer that is born of the faith. A specific prayer resulting from a specific faith that is guaranteed to save or heal the sick person. So I want to know what that is, because whatever that is, let's have more of it. <laughs> let's have that as often as possible. Well, I think we can say what it is this way. It's the prayer that happens when God grants the one praying the certainty that he's going to heal that person right now. It's the prayer that happens when God grants the one praying that prayer the certainty that God is going to heal this person right now. Some would call this the gift of faith that is listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, which happens to be right before gifts of healings in that same verse. Some say those are related. There's the prayer of faith that leads to the gift of healing. But they're both gifts from God. The bottom line is the elder is praying and he just knows God is going to heal this sick person. Doesn't have a biblical promise that that's going to happen right now, but he knows anyway. There's this gift of extraordinary assurance that this is going to happen. This has never happened to me. So I have to borrow somebody else's example. <laughs> I'll take one from Sam Storms. He's the pastor and author of many books on spiritual gifts. And he relates his experience. There was an infant boy in their church, just two weeks old, that had a serious, serious liver condition, gravely ill. It was going to require very risky surgeries, if not a transplant, at two weeks old. So the parents are... Very shaken by that, they call the elders, come and pray. Um, so they come, they come and they pray. And as Sam is praying over this child, 
he's suddenly filled with this overwhelming confidence that this child is going to be healed right now. And he said, um, every time I tried to push away that thought, every time I tried to say, that's just in my imagination, that's just crazy, he said he couldn't do it because he knew <laughs> this child is going to be healed. So he prays, and when they're done praying, he says to the parents, he's fine now. Now, word to the wise here, never say that. <laughs> Even Sam says, I've only done it once in my whole life. Because if you're wrong, that can do serious damage to somebody's faith. But in that case, he said it. They took their baby to the doctor the next day. He was fine. The doctor said there's nothing wrong with him. He's a young man now living a life with a perfect liver. That's the prayer of faith in action. It's a gift of faith from God for a guaranteed healing of a person as you pray. And James says God might give that prayer of faith to the elders when you call them. Probably not exclusively to the elders because gifts of healings can happen through lots of people, as we're going to see next. But at least the elders, as the spiritual shepherds of the church, should look to the Lord for this gift of faith while praying for someone. So it's a challenge to me and a challenge to Dan to be seeking God earnestly for that spiritual gift. And we would love to have that because we have many afflicted people here. And we would love to see you raised up and freed. There's one more thing to learn about this visit of the elders to a sick person. After the anointing, after the prayer of faith, after the healing happens... James says something else also happens. Verse 15, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, what does that mean? What, why is the topic of sin being brought up here in the context of praying for healing? Well, he's not talking about our general commission of sins that happens every day of our lives. Paul said in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there isn't anybody who has no sin. There's no if about that in our lives. We have committed sins, but there is an if here in this sentence. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. That means James has to be thinking about specific sins that could be related to the sickness for which the person was just healed. Sins that the healing assures are forgiven. Now, what could those sins be? I think they could be of three kinds. One is the sins that are the cause of the illness. If you're a heavy drinker and your liver is destroyed because of that, that's a sin that led to your illness. Another kind could be sins that are just the bad fruit of the sickness. For example, self-pity, envy of people who are well. 
bitterness against God for letting you go through this, unforgiveness of anybody who's maybe contributed to your sickness. Lots of sins could be the bad fruit of it. And a third category might be sins that the trial of being sick has revealed to you. Maybe by allowing you to suffer for a time, the Lord intends to get your attention about something. Maybe there's some idol in your life, something that's a God replacement, and He wants that grip on that to loosen, and so He puts you through a series of of trials until you start to realize, I need God, not this other thing. Any of those things could be the sins, I think, that James is thinking of here. He doesn't say that they're always there. He says, if, they might not be there. Your sickness may have nothing to do with any of that. But if there are sins involved here, either as the cause or the result or something that God's bringing your attention to, then if you are healed, it's a way of God saying, I forgive you. (laughs) I forgive that. This is a reminder that physical healing isn't the best thing that can happen to you. If it was, then James would have been content to just leave out this whole part about sin. Why would that matter if all that really matters is that you get well? But sin does matter. Because no matter what you get healed from in this life, you're still going to die eventually. And then you have eternity in front of you. And the only thing that determines whether that is an eternity of health and well-being and joy, or if that's an eternity of misery and pain, the only thing that determines the difference between those two things is whether or not your sins are forgiven. And they are only forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. The one who bore our sins so that he could also bear our illnesses. He said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Physical healing is great, but not if you forfeit your soul through unbelief in Jesus. He offers us an eternity of being well. Trust in Him. Follow Him. And sometimes He will encourage us along the way with a foretaste of what that future life will be like. That moment when you go from laying in bed to standing up feeling great is a picture of how much heaven is going to be so amazing. You close your eyes in death and you wake up feeling great. And it never goes away after that. Thank God for those foretastes. Thank God for His mercies that He will bring into today sometime. Let's move to the second scenario for seeking the Lord for healing. This involves praying for one another. Picking up the subject of forgiveness of sin, James says this in verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So we're still on the subject of miraculous healing by God 
But we're talking not, not only about the case of the bedridden person who calls for the elders. Now we're talking about the general life of the church at all times. And what that general life looks like is confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another that you may be healed. This looks like what could happen in your discipleship groups during the week. This could be what we're doing in our Friday night worship. This can be what you're doing one-on-one with somebody in in a meeting together. But there's this life of turning from sin and turning to the Lord in community with other believers. And we're confessing and we're praying for one another that we may be healed. We're bringing our sicknesses, our diseases to one another and asking for prayer. That means praying for healing is something that we're all called to do. Every one of us. Not just the elders. Gifts of healings in 1 Corinthians 12 could be given to any believer. Nobody has the gift of healing where you can just heal somebody at will. But anybody could receive gifts of healings. Any believer could be used by God to be a channel of grace through which another person is miraculously healed. And if you think that couldn't be you, then read further in verse 16. Because James says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If you are genuinely a believer in Jesus, if you're rescued from your sins, you are a righteous person because Jesus' righteousness has been credited to you by faith. He has stamped you with the word righteous. You are justified, declared righteous. So your prayer can have great power as it is working. Not because you have great power, but because God has great power. And he has removed the separation between you and him where he wouldn't formerly have listened to your prayer, but now you're a son, now you're a daughter, and he invites you to come with your requests as a compassionate God, and he's inclined to do it. He hears your prayers. You have God's ear. And those prayers could be the means for the miraculous to occur. And if you want proof of that, James gives us proof. He shows us the example of Elijah in verses 17 and 18. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And what did he do? He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Here's a guy like you, like me. He's an imperfect guy. He's a man who, after his great success confronting the 450 prophets of Baal, if you've read that story, you know, they're, they're crying out to their God, Baal, hear us, answer us. And they limp around the altar and nothing happens. And then Elijah comes up. He says, pour a bunch of water on that thing. Pour some more water on it. Make it soaking wet. And now, Lord, show it you're the true God. And boom, you know, lightning comes down and burns it up and everything's disintegrated. And then they end up killing all 450 prophets of Baal. 
great victory, right? Then he hears that Jezebel, the queen, says, I'm going to get Elijah, I'm going to kill him, and he runs for his life. You know, after the great victory is this depression. He goes and he sits under a broom tree, and he says, it's enough now, Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. You know, we think about Elijah as this amazing, mighty man of God, and he was, but he was a man with a nature like ours. He had imperfections. He had moments of unbelief. He had failures. And yet he prayed, Lord, don't let it rain. And it didn't for three years and six months. That's a miracle. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working because God has great power. If he wants to give a gift of miraculous healing, there is no fundamental reason why he couldn't use you to do that. The takeaway here is that as a church, we are to regularly seek the Lord for healing. Yes, it can be a selfish thing to do. We can have this sense that God owes us health. You know, I should never walk around with any pain. I should be completely fit 100% of the time. Um, we can have that in our head. We have this sense that we should never suffer. And so then we go to the Lord and we just kind of expect it, demand it, give it to me. Um, you know, the Lord's not really inclined to answer that kind of a prayer. You go back to James 4, 3. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So he's not going to say yes to everything. He doesn't want to reward our sinful attitudes. But clearly in James, the picture that we have of our God is that he invites us to ask him. And to think that he would be inclined to say yes and not rather inclined to say no. That he would gladly do it unless he has some higher reason not to do it. Some reason consistent with love that we don't know right now, but he'll, he'll say no sometimes. But his inclination is, I will do it. I think sometimes we come to him saying, well, he probably won't, but I'll ask anyway. I think James would say, no, think that he will, unless he has a reason to say no. And I think we have good reason to believe that he will heal more often when it comes in the context of confessing our sins to one another and praying for one another within the local church, in the context of humility, in the context of transparency, and this desire to follow Jesus more closely, in the context of helping one another through prayer, through prayer you may indeed be healed. Let me close by getting really practical here. What exactly do you do when someone comes to you and says, would you pray for me? And they mean pray for my sickness. What do you do next? I want to offer an outline for how we do this. And I preface this by saying there is no magic formula for praying for healing. There are principles. But Jesus didn't do the same thing every time. And neither did Paul or Peter or anybody else that God used to heal people. So we shouldn't think, well, I, there's this magic thing. If I just say it and do it in the right order, then things will happen. But if I miss, oh man, 
You know, they're not healed because I left out step two. You know, we shouldn't think that way. <laughs> this is a relationship with a God who understands that we are but dust. And he's compassionate towards us. But there are principles. And so there are things that provide a good environment, I think, for the Lord to grant gifts of healing. So I'm thinking of three parts. And I'm taking these from other people's practices who have done a lot of this, as well as principles from Scripture. Somebody comes to you and says, would you pray for me? Here's what you do first. There's an interview. The interview. This is basic. You just want to know what's wrong. What's the affliction? What do you want the Lord to heal? So get some background. Like, how long has this been going on? How is this affecting your life? Get a picture of their life. That, that demonstrates care. Uh, you want to know the person, not just the problem. You want your prayers to be informed by what they're going through so that you know how to pray better. And get, get specifics. Uh, don't just settle for, well, I don't feel well, so would you pray for me? No, find out where they don't feel well. <laughs> Tell me what hurts. Is there a physician's diagnosis? And why do you want specificity? Because when we only pray general prayers for general things, we're only generally encouraged when something good happens because we don't really know what happened or if it was our prayer or not. But when you know specifically what's wrong and you pray specifically for that thing, then you know there's a connection between that prayer and that healing, and that's faith building. When somebody can say, I was blind, but now I see, as you prayed for my blindness. Now, don't ask for all the gory details. Don't start talking about blood a lot around me, or I'm going to fall over and I'll be no good to you. <laughs> but give enough information so that your prayers are connected to what happens next, and the person knows that it came through prayer. Okay, so first there's the interview. Second part is the prayer. It's a good practice to start by laying hands on somebody. That's a very common way of praying for people in the, in the Bible. Um, be appropriate where your hands go. But this is a way of ministering relationally. This is a reminder that you're not alone. There's a physical person here who cares, who is part of a body, the body of Christ, the church, and they're here for you. Uh, we're not just mailing it in. We're here physically with you. That's what laying hands on communicates. So you start with that. And when you pray, begin with this affirmation of God's character and his love for his children. We're appealing to, this appealing to this compassionate God and his heart for us. We're appealing to mercy right now. Uh, so it's like the Lord's Prayer, where we begin with, hallowed be your name, before we get to give us this day our daily bread. We're starting with the character of God, because that gives perspective to our prayers, and it encourages us. Yes, God, God is leaning in. God hears. God is good. We're, this isn't against his will. He invites us to do this. Let, let's, let's first think about his character. 
And then simply ask. Ask the Father to heal the exact ailment or condition that's causing the distress. Be specific. Father, we ask you to remove this sister's insomnia. Whatever is causing her to remain awake night after night after night, we ask you to dispel that. We ask that tonight is the first night of many nights of refreshing sleep. We ask it in the name of Jesus who bore our sins that he might bear our diseases. We pray specifically and we pray confident in the character of God. And I would add this, one of the habits that we probably need to lose is the habit of always prefacing our prayers with, Lord, if it is your will, then heal so and so. Now, if that's an attempt to not be demanding, that's well-intentioned. But praying confidently is not the same as praying by, by demanding. The fact is, if it isn't the Lord's will, He'll let you know. <laughs> because He won't do it. <laughs> no child asks his, parent, his parents, if it is your will, can I go to the park? They just say, can I go to the park? Because that's normal communication between a child and a loving parent. So we don't need to add that qualifier, which often is an escape route. Basically, I don't think anything's going to happen. So since I say that, I won't be so disappointed when it doesn't happen. Uh, maybe we need to lose that and just ask. And the Lord will tell us what His will is by the result. And finally, the third part is the evaluation. So we have an interview, we pray, then an evaluation. If you have time, stop and ask the person you're praying for if they notice anything happening. It's not uncommon for a person who is being healed to, to experience a warm or even a burning sensation at the location where something is being healed. Uh, I wish we had asked Dinah Lovano that question. Uh, do you feel anything? Because when we were praying for her as elders and wives a couple of years ago, she felt that in her abdomen. She felt a burning sensation and then no pain where there had been pain for 30 years. And if we'd have asked, Has, are you feeling anything? We would have known that and we would have rejoiced together in the moment. God did this. We learned about it later. That's still good. The healing's still good. <laughs> but... I would like to have had it right there. You know, we could have rejoiced together. Um, but don't limit your evaluation to the physical. Ask how they're doing emotionally. Um, are there any fears or worries that they're battling? Are there any sins that are coming to mind? Maybe the Lord is revealing something here. Maybe the Lord will give you or someone else a prophetic word for them. Any of those things could change the direction of your prayers as the Spirit is revealing something. And then, based on what you hear, you may pray again, uh, now going in a new direction, and just keep praying until you feel like you've said all that needs to be said. No need to rush, but leave them with hope if they're not healed. Leave them with hope. It doesn't mean never. 
It might just mean not now, not today. But we have the example of the persistent widow who kept coming to the judge over and over and over again. Finally, she got what she was seeking. Jesus says, if an unrighteous judge would do that, wouldn't your heavenly father do even better? So don't give up. Don't think, well, I asked once, I asked twice, I guess that's it. I live with this the rest of my life. We don't know that. Not when we have a persistent widow for our example. So let's always pray and not lose heart. Let's, let's apply that to healing prayer. Let's, let's persevere. Let's say, you know what? Okay, this didn't happen today. Come back again. Let's do this again. Let's keep doing this. Whatever it takes until, until God clearly says no or he does it. I just want to end with this invitation. Let's be a church where we pray expectantly for the Lord to miraculously heal our afflictions. Do it in your discipleship group meetings and elsewhere. Do it in our Friday night worship times. And one thing that we would like to do is if we have people who are so inclined to have a a team of people who are ready after a service like this on any Sunday morning who want to pray for the sick. Pray for whatever you have. You don't have to be an elder. You just have to be a Christian. (laughs) Because then you're a righteous person whose prayers work powerfully if God inclines to heal. So if you have a heart for people, a heart of compassion, you want to be available on a regular basis on a Sunday morning to pray, come see me or come see Dan, and we're going to try and put something together on a regular basis. And may the Lord raise up many who are sick because of his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, um, quench our doubts about your character. Um, Cause us to reevaluate any kind of unbiblical thinking about your attitude towards this. Do reveal in our hearts any sort of wrong motive or selfishness or bitterness over afflictions current or past. Um, Give grace to those who are suffering to endure, but we ask that there will be in the days to come healings, miraculous healings as another indication that you are for us and that our sins are forgiven. We ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.